good for us, Lord. And we just pray that we live lives um, to honor you, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, kids. Well, you know what to do already, so just have at it. Good morning again. Good morning. Good morning. I want to congratulate my friend Rob here. He's a head football coach up at CB West. He, he loves attention drawn to himself, by the way. That's why he wears those subdued colors. Uh, he just keeps on winning, this guy. Started the season, what, one and four? One and three. Now they just keep making playoff runs. Garnet Valley this week, right? I usually don't draw much attention to high school football. I hope you know how much I love you. So, so anyway, glad you're here. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to turn there. I promise that's where we'll be. I might read from the wrong passage, but that's where we're, going to, that's where we're supposed to be. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Today we're going to celebrate communion together. Communion is one of these things in the church. Like last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit. Communion is one of these things that we tend to either overestimate our understanding of or underestimate our understanding of. I'm not saying that everyone falls into one of those two extremes, but I would say that those camps have more people in them than the balanced middle where we look at the scriptures and say, this is what it means. I fall into one of those two camps from time to time. Uh, and I, it takes digging into the word to reorient us around us what this means. If we don't have a proper understanding about it, either it won't be important to us or it will feel too intimidating to us. There will be elements of it that it just feel kind of weird or strange or different, and it's just outside of the norm. And if it's outside of the norm, it's just, ah, uh, no thanks. It can lean towards that. It can also lean towards so much familiarity that it, it loses its sacredness. It loses its real meaning. It can just become, as my Bible prof used to say, the snack before the sermon. So we talked about what these symbols are a few weeks ago. We, we opened up the scriptures and we, we dug into the meaning of this word, communion. We, we talked about what they are. We talked about what they are not. Today we want to look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth as he reminds them about the joy and the importance of these symbols. And that's exactly what they are. They are symbols to remind and reorient our hearts. Now, these were well established already. The church knew this was a discipline that they should partake in. Uh, I could spend hours and hours just talking about how the bread and the cup had deep significance to the people of God way before Jesus gave new teaching on his body and his blood, but we don't have that kind of time this morning. Um, just I promise you that it's there. And I'd encourage you, if you're looking for something to study in the Word, that's something that you could dig into. The bread and the cups meaning at Passover. Just a, remind, just a reminder, at the Passover, there was, a bread, there was bread and there was a cup of wine already there. That wasn't, those weren't new elements to the Passover meal. So you tend to look at it as a Jesus-only thing, but this has been the part of the story of God and the symbols of God all along. We just don't have time to dig into that. I encourage you to do a study on that yourself. Uh, or let's get a cup of coffee and talk about it. But let's break this down a bit because what's happened is the church is established. Churches are being planted throughout Asia, throughout the Middle East, throughout into, even up into Europe, and churches are starting to spread. And that means the gospel is starting to spread. And anytime the gospel starts to spread, it starts to make its way into already well-established cultural systems. And some of those make their way back in. 
So what's happening in the church in Corinth is Paul's writing a letter to them and he's correcting some of their bad theology. He's correcting some of their behavior patterns. He's correcting some things in what he writes to them. And this is what he's correcting and it comes to the Lord's Supper. So let's look at what Paul says. Again, put yourself in the place of the reader. You are in a first century church. It has been planted and it is growing and people are gathering, not necessarily in a building. They could be meeting in, in a, under a tree or at somebody's house. Most likely that was... The, the vast majority of people are just meeting in homes. But the church in Corinth is the followers of Jesus, the ones who have understood the redemptive work of Jesus, meeting and gathering together like we are this morning. And this is what he says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. Paul says this, But, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. That's... A good way to start a letter, right? I, what I'm about to say is not going to feel good. That's what he's saying. I'm about to lay in you two pretty hard here. What I'm about to say isn't to make you feel good about your decisions. Because when you gather together, it's not for something better. It's for something worse. How would you like Paul's admonition of our gatherings to start off like that? I think he has the reader's attention, wouldn't you say? So let's go on. What is he so upset about? What is he trying to reorient? Well, look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So a few things. It's a few things here for context. Corinth is an established church. And anytime something is established, it can tend to operate on cruise control. You know what cruise control is, right? How many of you get frustrated because you know the car in front of you on the turnpike has cruise control and they refuse to use it? Anyone? Am I the only one? I'm like, that car is newer than the one I'm driving. I know you have cruise control. Why have I passed you seven times, right? There's a story of a woman who bought an RV, and it doesn't have to be a woman. It could have been a man. But in this case, it's a true story, and it was a woman. 
It doesn't mean all women are bad drivers, okay? But in this, in this story, this is a true story. This woman bought an RV, a very expensive one, and got it on the highway and up to speed, set the cruise control, and then got up to go make herself a sandwich. The RV went off the road, rolled, she survived, and then she sued the RV company because they didn't have proper instructions, and she won the case. Now, that's a, there's a whole cultural thing that could be said there, right? Everyone's like went from, oh, my word, how dumb, to, oh, my word, the injustice, right? Like, there was a whole gambit of emotions there. It was really great to see. Uh, but why did she think she could just do that? Well, because it was up to speed, and it was, it was going fine. It was just... So to her, it was more comfortable and made sense in that moment to just get up and go make herself a sandwich. It drove itself, right? Churches do this. Churches do this. They, they get established and then they get complacent. Churches, gatherings of people, lose sight of the why. Why are we doing this? Why does this even matter? How many things in your life do you do on a regular basis and not ask yourself why you do it that way? I mean, think about that. Why do you always put your sock on right foot first? Maybe you don't. Maybe you're a left foot first person, but you do it the same way every time. Why do you always and only use milk on cereal? Never questioning whether that's the only proper liquid to put on your cereal or not. There's a story of a woman who made ham every year, and she would take the ham and she would, she would cut the ends off of it, the rounded ends, and then she'd put it in the roaster. And her husband asked her, why do you do that? Why, whenever you cook the ham, do you cook the ends separately? And she said, that's the way my mom taught me to cook the ham. So when mom got there for dinner that day, he, he asked her, hey, mom, why, whenever uh, you, you cook the ham and taught her to cook the ham, do you cut the ends off of it and cook them separately? And she said, that's the way my mom taught me. So when grandma got there, they said, Grandma, why do, you, uh, why do you cut the ends off of your ham and then cook them separately? And she said, well, whenever your grandfather and I first got married, we only had one roaster and it was pretty small, so I'd have to cut the ends off the ham to fit it in the roaster. And then we'd have to cook those separately. And for generations, they had cooked the ham that way. Not because they all had small roasting pans, but because that's the way it was handed down. And nobody asked why. Don't we do that in church? Don't we just go through the motions? We sit down, we open our Bibles, we sing some songs. Have we ever found, and you don't have to raise your hands, you don't have to admit this, but have you ever found yourself... Looking at the words on the screen and words are coming out of your mouth, but it's kind of that moment like you drove for 15 minutes and you don't remember any of the drive. Just kind of checked out, right? And we go through the motions and we make it through and we... Don't we do that sometimes? When Paul checks in on the church in Corinth, he finds that this is how they have operated in regards to the Lord's Supper. He finds that they have not only gone into this like established mode where nothing really has the significance it once did, just go through the motions. He, he realizes this, but he also realizes they've taken it a step further to the point where these symbols have borderline meant nothing to them. Elitism has made its way into this body. 
church had gotten to the point where the Lord's Supper wasn't really celebrated with any of the focus that it merits. So like God called Paul to do, he reorients the reader around the truth of God's word. And Paul points out that a united church is what God's perfect desire is. Look at verses 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22 again. Let's just look at some of the language Paul uses here because he's pointing out something. He's saying that he starts off, we already reiterated this, but he starts off by saying that when you come together for the Lord's Supper, there's nothing good I can commend you for on it. Wow. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, Paul's not about this. There are divisions among you. He says that there, he goes on to point out that there are people that come together in the name of the church and have a meal together and are perfectly fine with filling their bellies, not just with food, but with drink to the point of drunkenness. Now, this could be figurative language that Paul's using, not essentially talking about them being intoxicated, but overfilling themselves to make the point that there are other people in the room that don't have anything to eat. That the church is gathering and there are those without and those with are just keeping it to themselves. Which is not at all like the Acts 2 church, am I right? Isn't the Acts 2 church the one that they said that they were, they were divvying up their properties and selling things they didn't necessarily need so that other people could have what they did need? This doesn't sound like that, does it? He says, why are you doing this in the name of the church? Don't you have a house? You want to overeat and overdrink and not share? Do it on your own time. Don't do it as the gathered church. What's the point of coming together as a congregation and enacting like that? Why do that? That's what his question is in verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you, do you despise? Maybe you despise the church of God. And out of that, you humiliate those who have nothing What, what, what do you want me to say to that? That's what Paul's saying. What, what do you want me to say? You want me to pat you on the back, congratulate you, tell you good job? Now, I don't know Paul. I didn't meet him. But I don't know if Paul, if retelling this, used the words, no, I will not. It sounds like, it almost sounds too polite. I picture Paul like hot here. Maybe I'm wrong. But Paul doesn't have time for elitism in the church. He was the spiritual elite. He was the Pharisee. And in his zealousness towards him being able to obey the law, he went out on a killing spree for those who loved Jesus, only to meet Jesus himself. He knows what this looks like. He knows how repulsive it feels inside. He is living in Christ now. So to see any manner of arrogance and self-righteousness in the church is repulsive to him. And he's telling the reader, I am an authority on self-righteousness. 
and it's disgusting. So when it comes to the Lord's Supper, there's nowhere to go that is worshipful to God if that's our starting point. That's what he's saying. If the gathered church is already not sharing their resources and not united in their approach and not doing this for the glory and fame of Jesus, then there's nowhere to go. I have nothing good to tell you except this. Except this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Now listen, every time I've done communion in my entire life, I'm pretty sure every time I've done communion in my entire life, this is the passage I read. This is the passage that was led. This is the passage that people recited out loud as we partook in the cup together. I don't remember one time being reoriented around why Paul was saying it contextually. Why was he reminding the reader? Why, was, why do we only start at verse 23 was the question I got into this week as I was just studying up and reading this. Why do we always start at verse 23? Because to start any earlier than that means we have to confront ourselves. And we don't like that. Paul says, I am giving to you what I have been given from the Lord. He goes through a very specific instruction on what it looks like to enter into the bread and the cup. But the church that he's speaking to had gotten to the point where they were, Paul doesn't have any, any commendation for a church that's pompous, arrogant, self-centered, self-focused. He doesn't have anything of good to tell you about that behavioral pattern. So what does Paul do? In a master stroke, what Paul does here is reorient the reader around truth. He doesn't just sit there and let them wallow in their bad decisions, but he also doesn't force them to do it the right way. He just points out to them what is wrong in the church. And then he points out to them what is right with Jesus. Let's reorient around what Jesus said. Let's reorient around what Jesus did. Let's reorient around why this matters. He instructs on what the focus should be. He's made it very clear this is not the focus. You're doing it, but you're not doing it for the right reasons, and you have completely lost touch with why you're doing it. So this is why we do it. This is what it should be, verses 23 through 26. That's all he talks about. This is what it is. This is what it should be. What happens then if we know the truth and willingly disregard it? This is a masterstroke that Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and by God's grace to us. He points out what's wrong. He reorients around what's right. And then he goes to the third step to say what it should be and what happens if you willingly disregard this. You can no longer plead ignorance is what he's saying. Verses 27 through 29, he says, Whoever, therefore, therefore, based on what we know this is supposed to look like, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
when I was a kid, that would get that would get read, and I would just automatically think like, oh man, I got to take like three minutes before I drink this grape juice and eat this little wafer to make sure that I don't have any sin in my life. And if I could clear myself out for the next 30 seconds until I gulp that down, then I'm good. That was sort of my juvenile approach to it. What Paul's saying is when we reorient ourselves around the real deep reality of who Christ is and what He did for us, it changes us. It changes our perspective. It changes our motivations. It changes our countenance. It changes all those things. He goes on in the rest of the chapter to say that if there are those who are weak and sick in the body, maybe it's because you don't live out this stuff seriously. Now, there's a lot there, and it would take a long time to unpack that for context for us today. But Paul is putting a high amount of significance on these symbols not because the symbols themselves become anything other than what they are, but because if we don't reorient ourselves around what they mean and why we do them, and we just do them callously, he says that we heap judgment upon ourselves akin to Jesus' death. Meaning the death we deserved, we put ourselves in the place of that. We might as well have just done it. We might as well have just died in condemnation for our own sins because we're doing this to remember that we don't have to. And you lose sight of that, then what's the point? Now, why did Jesus give this communion in the first place? I want us to look at something important here. This is, go, to, go to John 13, verse 1. If you could go back to John 13, verse 1. Why did Jesus give us communion in the first place? I want to look at the moment Jesus gives us this gift. And this is before the cross, by the way. John gives us the most most in-depth view of the Last Supper to any other gospel. It starts in John 13, verse 1, and it makes its way the whole way to John 18, verse 1. And that is the moment that we get to zoom in on the famous, you've probably seen the Da Vinci painting, The Last Supper. I don't know if that's what it looked like. But The Last Supper, it's, it's come to be known. The last time that Jesus gathered with His 12 disciples... Now, if you look at this with me, we start at John 13, verse 1. And the first thing that Jesus does is he postures himself as a servant and he washes the disciples' feet. And Peter stands up and says, no, 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 no. You will never wash my feet. You are the king. I will never let this happen. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Here's what this means. We've talked about this before. I'm going to do it real quick. In those days, you could take a bath here, walk 100 yards to your neighbor's house, and by the time you got to their house, your feet would be filthy. Everything on you was clean except for your feet because you had to get there. And the only way you could get there is the dirt road. You had to walk to get there. Just 100 short yards. By the time you got there, your feet were filthy. So there was always a servant at the door that would meet you, and they would kneel down and they would wash your feet so that whenever you entered into your friend's home... 
you wouldn't bring any of your dirt with you. It's the symbol that Jesus gives of present, ongoing cleaning. We're going to go throughout our day. We're going to go throughout our week. We're going to go throughout our time in life. And we're going to pick up sin. We're going to make bad choices. And yet, Christ humbly gets down and cleanses us on a regular basis, the ongoing cleansing work of Jesus to keep the dirt of sin from stacking up on us. Jesus sets this aside. He says, keep doing this. As I've washed your feet, go and wash one another's feet. You'll be blessed if you keep doing this. So we posture ourselves like Jesus in this church. We kneel, we wash one another's feet. So later on today, after we're done with this part of the service, we will partner up with someone and you will wash one another's feet. We don't assign you to someone to wash their feet. You get to pick that person. And we posture ourselves like Jesus. That's how this whole thing gets started. This whole meal, this last supper gets started with Jesus with that immense amount of teaching. Then he goes on to teach. He teaches on the reality that one in this room will betray me and they're trying to figure out who it is. And then he gives the new command. We've looked at this before. Love one another. Go, let the world see that you belong to me by how you treat the world, how you interact with the world. That's how they will know who you belong to. He tells Peter, Peter, I'm sorry, but you will deny that you know me. Your flesh will rise to the surface and you will see a weakness in yourself that will borderline destroy you. I promise you it's going to happen. Keep your eyes focused on me and you will be better for it. But it's going to happen. He goes on to say important truths, truths that get quoted the, for, for generations now. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets back to the Father except through me. He tells them about the promised Holy Spirit. We looked at that last week. He says, I am the true vine. There are branches that branch off of this vine that will get cut off. They do not belong here. They do not belong with me. Abide in me and I in you. That's in 15. He goes on to say that the hatred of the world, the world hates you. Know that it has hated me first. In this world, you will have trouble. It will be hard. It will be difficult when you carry my name. I want you to pay attention to what they're going to do to me in the next few days. And if you associate yourself with me, that's what the world will do to you. He warns them, but take heart. I've overcome the world. The worst they can do is snuff out your life. And if they do that, you'll be with me. He goes on to say that their sorrow, which they don't even know they're going to experience yet, will turn to joy. And then he does the high priestly prayer. Verse 18, 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. The Garden of Gethsemane. So in this moment, as Jesus is at the table, he raises the bread and he breaks it and he says he gives thanks. He says, do this in remembrance of me you see, communion is set aside so that we don't forget. It's not set aside just so that we can feel more holy because we partook in a symbol. 
It's not set aside so that we can say, yes, I mean, I I had perfect attendance this year. I memorized all my Bible verses. I was present at all the communion services we did. And and I, I don't miss the other things that we do. It wasn't so that we can make a checklist of our good Christian behavior. It was so that we didn't forget. It was so that we didn't forget. My wife, if you've been around her, is a prolific photographer. She's good at it. She takes pictures of everything. We have pictures documenting so many things, so many things. And I'm not making fun of her for that. I don't mean that in a humorous way. I know she's going to hear it that way. But one of the things she started doing years ago, years ago, probably close to a decade ago, she started getting these books printed called chat books. So that's Jack, by the way. And in this book is just all the photos. This is our old house before we even moved. And we look at these photos often. When you say to the kids, if things are getting a little riled up, which you can guess in a house with four kids, sometimes it does. It's not uncommon for me to say, okay, guys, calm down. Go in the living room, grab a book. And they'll go into the cabinet and they'll open it up and they'll grab a stack of these. I don't know how many we have now. It's a lot. I mean, this one is from August 30th. uh, Yeah, August of 2022 this year, and it is volume 128. (laughs) Well, these are $10 a piece. (laughs) Anyway. We look at these and we remember. We remember. We remember and when we remember, we sit down, and, and it's not uncommon for one of the kids to pull one up and, and open it up and be like, oh my gosh, look at how cute Jack was, or look at this thing we did, or look at this place we went. Look at the time that Isaiah ran his first 5K down in the city. Look what mommy wrote about it. Isaiah poised at the top of the rocky steps like a champion. Our camping trip. And we remember. And when we remember... Do you think we look at these and say, oh, that was awful. We should have never taken pictures of that. No, we remember and we become grateful. Gratitude kicks in shortly after remembrance. My, one of my favorites is last year we took the kids to Hershey Park for Christmas and I meant to grab that one and I forgot. And the lights were on and the rides were on and it was nighttime and it was cold. And it was just something magical about doing it. And I don't know why that stands out to me as such an awesome, awesome family memory, but it's one of my favorites. So I go to that one often. And I look through it and I see the joy on our faces as we see all the Christmas lights and we're wearing our winter clothes, we're riding amusement park rides and the look on the kids' faces. And we stayed in a hotel, which is always a big deal for them. And I remember. I don't remember how much the gas cost. I don't remember how much the tickets prices were. I, I don't remember how long the lines were. I don't remember the cold temperature. 
I don't remember if the hotel had anything wrong with it or whether there was stuff that was, that was out of supply at the hotel breakfast. I don't remember any of that. I don't remember if there was traffic. I don't remember how much the tolls were. All the stuff that may be on my way there in the midst of I might have griped about. I don't know. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. All I know is when I look at the, when I remember, when I look at the book and I remember when we were there, I don't think of any of that. I just remember what I got to experience. And it makes me grateful. So when we partake, church, in the bread and the cup, when we kneel and wash one another's feet, whenever we have a meal together in this fashion, what we're doing is we are remembering. Because remembering makes us grateful. You may have heard the bread and the cup referred to as the Eucharist. Anyone ever heard that before? If you grew up with any kind of Catholic background, you've probably heard that mostly referred to as the Eucharist. You were going to celebrate the Eucharist. I don't know if you would have ever heard the words communion for this. You would have had your first Holy Communion, I'm guessing, but then ongoing Mass after Mass, you would have celebrated the Eucharist. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. That comes from the word Eucharistio, which means thanksgiving or to be thankful. Eucharisteo. And right in the middle of this word, Eucharistio, is this word, charis. C-H-A-R-I-S. That is the Greek word for grace. So the Greek language is a beautiful thing. The Greek word for grace is right packed in the middle of Eucharistio. This word that has come to mean thankfulness or gratitude is rooted right in the center with grace. Overwhelmed with the grace of it all. So by God's grace, we remember. By God's grace, we have this gift of Jesus. And we remember We remember that we were lost and in utter darkness in the pit of our own sin. We remember what it was like to be separate from God. We imagine what it would be like to not have Jesus. And we remember that that's not our story anymore. And we remember that through Jesus' sacrifice, it saved me from having to do that for myself. And I would have never had the same outcome. I would have maybe been put to a horrible death. And my body would have stayed dead in a tomb. But not Jesus. No, his body was broken. And his blood was spilled. And breath filled his lungs on the third day. And he does his 40-day victory lap. And then he ascends and sends the Holy Spirit. And out of that, the church gets birthed. And when we do this, we remember what we would have without him. We open the photo book up to a very real Jesus and we remember and it makes us grateful. We become thankful. We remember the work of Jesus kneeling down and washing our feet, the symbol of daily cleansing to make sure that we are staying away from sin, not stacking dirt upon dirt upon dirt. And we remember 
and we kneel and we wash one another's feet with joy. We find joy in this thing that outside of this moment maybe we've never done. Then we gather for a meal and we think about heaven and we think about what that's going to look like and we, we know what we've been promised now and we conversate about that and we get our hearts and minds focused on that and it brings gratitude. I'm reading through numbers with Toby and Jack at night and I know you're probably thinking, really? And Yes. But I am struck by how many times it speaks to the reason behind the people's disobedience of God and how it's rooted back in their unwillingness to remember what He had done for them. I'm struck by how many times God had revealed His faithfulness to His people and He said, I will bring you food every day, just gather what you need. And they went out and said, no, 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 I know that He said He's going to be coming back tomorrow. And I know that He's always been here for us, but I'm going to take more than I need. And then to wake up the next day and it would all be rotted in their tent because they didn't listen. When they go to Moses and they complain and they say, we are, we're so tired of this manna, this thing that God just keeps providing for us, this sustenance. We are so tired of our taste buds, need a little bit of an increase here. We need diversity to our palate, Moses. We would be better off being slaves in Egypt. And God hears this and he tells Moses, you tell the people tomorrow to get ready. I will bring them quail. I will bring them more meat then they know what to do with. They will eat meat. It actually says in the Word, they will eat meat until it comes out of their ears. And God brings in quail four feet deep into their camp. And God says, you want more diversity to your palate? There it is. You will eat quail until it comes out of your ears. They never, had, they never were without. God always provided for them. And every time something happened where God had to remind them of His power and had to exercise judgment upon them, every time it was because they forgot. It was because they, they, they didn't just forget. That can be harmless. They chose to not remember. Isn't there a difference? If I forget to do something for my wife that I said I would do, that can be pretty easily forgiven because I can be a forgetful person. But if I willingly choose to not remember, that's malicious. And that does not communicate love. And the people of God throughout the Old Testament willingly chose to not remember. They didn't forget. They willingly chose to not remember. So here's my challenge to us all. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's open the photo book of God's goodness and His grace, and let's experience that Eucharistio, that thankfulness. I can think of no better way to enter into the week of Thanksgiving than this, to celebrate these symbols together, to be reminded of what God did and what He will continue to do and what He has always been to us. And we will be grateful for it. We won't allow the symbols to just become another thing we do. We will willingly and genuinely remember. And we will be better for it. So the past, present, and future ministry of Jesus is why we do communion the way we do. The past ministry of Jesus being the bread and the cup. We're going to celebrate that as part of this worship service here in a few minutes.
the present ministry of Jesus of daily cleansing. We're going to do that through foot washing whenever we get done with the service and set up. And then we'll have a meal together to celebrate the future ministry of Jesus when we are redeemed fully in his presence and he has what's called the marriage supper, the lamb, this feast to end all feasts when we feast in the presence of God.